It's so good to be back here with you again. Can I just say we've had a lovely time in Queensland, uh, but it was the coldest winter in Queensland for over 30 years, and all the Queenslanders were shivering. <laughs> we, um, we hardly got out of long trousers and jumpers ourselves. So, let me read to you from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 29. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. By the way, in the original Greek, that word for door used here can also be translated gate. So it's, um, it's one of those ones that has both meanings, a door or gate. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Have you ever heard the expression, he or she is riding on the coattails of whoever? Have you ever heard that expression? Oh, they're just riding on the coattails of someone. But do you know what it means? What does it mean? He or she is riding on the coattails of... Simply, it refers to someone seeking to claim an advantage or some success, often in a business or political context, based on the efforts of another. They're doing the job and you hope to gain the benefit. A person seeks to gain a benefit because someone else has done the main work. Now is that fair? Do you think it's fair? They do all the work and you get all the benefit? Hmm. Though the origin of the expression 
is thought to be in England around the 1600s. It appears that its current form did not appear until the mid-1900s, around about 1850. And what I find interesting is that in the passage we've just read, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus was addressing to those who were seeking to claim the benefits from his ministry and the ministry of the Old Testament prophets without allowing God's Holy Spirit to totally transform their hearts and minds. What precipitated this outburst from the Lord was the simple question, are there few who are saved? And it's a good question. It's a question that we hear today. In the world today, are there few who will be saved? When we look at the world around us and all of the aberrations of life, the drunkenness, the gambling, the drug taking, we wonder, are there few who will be saved? The implication of the question is that the questioner was somewhat surprised by what they were hearing from the Lord Jesus. Now we should remember that in much of Jesus' teaching, he spoke in parables. And his main focus or his main theme was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. You remember those famous Parables, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. And of course, as we study the gospel records, we realise that these two terms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, are completely interchangeable. Completely. Especially when we compare passages like Luke 13 and Matthew 13. The same parables... Luke says one thing, Matthew says the other. The, Luke, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But the parable is identical. And we should not forget that when the Lord Jesus was, uh, that what the Lord Jesus was teaching was totally, totally different to anything the people had heard from the teachers of the law. They had taught for many generations one thing. And Jesus came along and he threw over all that teaching. What the people had always understood was that their eternal salvation was secured because they were Jewish. They were the chosen people. They get to go to heaven because God chose them and everybody else. Their eternal salvation was secured because they were Jews. And both the law 
and the, the Jewish rituals guaranteed their salvation. That's what the teachers of the law had taught them. And one could argue that there was a hint of eugenics in this. That is, a sense of racial superiority. Now, do you know that term eugenics? It was a term bandied around a lot in the early part of the 20th century. Um, from about 1910 onwards, there were eugenic philosophers. And it was a philosophy that was particularly taken up in a big way and put into practice by a gentleman called Adolf Hitler with the rise of Nazism. A lot of what they did, particularly to the Jews, was because of eugenics. They saw the Aryan race as superior. If you ever want to study it up, E-U-G-E-N-I-C-S, eugenics. It's scary stuff. But this is what the Jews had understood and lived for centuries beforehand, before it became a designated philosophy. The Jews had understood it. They were the chosen people. They were better than anyone, anyone and everyone else. And what the Lord Jesus was revealing in his parables was that only God, only God was the total provider and arbiter of salvation. And one's Jewishness or adherence to law and ritual provided absolutely no guarantees of any salvation. Can you understand why the teachers of the law hated Jesus and wanted to kill him? Because everything he taught was against everything they stood for. Jesus taught about the mustard seed that became a large tree and provided shelter for all of the birds. All of them. Not just a select few. And the yeast, Jesus spoke of the yeast that had the capacity to work through all, all of the dough, not just one select part. This was radical teaching because it challenged the whole notion of Jewish privilege and superiority as the recipients of God's blessings. And isn't this similar to what many of us hear in Western countries today with the notion that because we are so-called pseudo-Christian, or a pseudo-Christian society, then how can a supposed loving God even contemplate to refuse his benefits toward us? 
How can a loving God send anyone to hell? You hear that today. Even people who say, oh, I don't believe in God, in the very next breath they'll say, and if there's a loving God, he won't send me to hell. Oh, yeah. Even today, many people expect that when they die, they will go to that great banquet in the sky. Have you heard about that? There's a great banquet, people, especially people who love food. They think that in death they're going to be able to eat anything and everything without worries about cholesterol or blood pressure or anything like that. What about the, the great holiday resort in the sky? Have you heard about that one? And of course the one, one I love the best is when you die, there's that great golf course in the sky. And I have conducted funerals of people who loved golf and where the casket was in the front of the church, there were some of their prized possessions, especially their golf clubs. Because, of course, you know, they're dead, they're going to heaven, they're going to be playing golf all over the place. Every shot's going to be a hole in one, even on a par five. Oh dear. And when someone dies, how often do we hear people seeking to comfort one another with declarations that their loved one has gone to heaven? Now, it's not for me to say who's going to heaven, who's not going to heaven. I don't know. God does, but I don't. But people say this all the time. Oh, oh well, at least they're in heaven now. Despite the fact that the dead person had lived their life in almost total ignorance and often willful disobedience, to all that God stands for. They ignored God's values, God's principles, God's attitudes and God's character. And yet, people say, oh, well, they're in heaven now. It would be nice if they were, but I have my suspicions. To be sure, today... No one wants to hear any kind of preaching that smacks of hellfire and damnation because we should never use fear or negative tactics to get anyone to come to church. Let's face it, these days that can be a real turn-off. But does it invalidate the truths of God? In spite of all this, the question remains, who then or will, who then can or will be saved? To be sure, we can't earn our way into heaven by our good works or our positive attitudes or being a nice person. That doesn't get us into heaven. It's not a matter of accruing enough brownie points 
or ensuring that our good works outweigh our bad deeds on the balanced scales. Neither can we expect to be invited into heaven based on the fact that our mother or our grandfather or anyone else related to us was or is a God-honouring, God-loving, kind, generous and faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. We cannot expect to be welcomed into heaven on the coattails of a faithful relative. It just doesn't work. Their faith is not like COVID. It doesn't, we don't catch it. It's not like that. In his response to the person's question, the Lord Jesus replied with these words. Strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door or the narrow gate. The big question for us today is, what did the Lord Jesus mean by these words? Especially that word strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Work hard to enter. Hmm. But when Jesus used the word strive, was he implying that heaven is something to be worked for or earned by our own effort or merit? No, that's not what he was meaning. What the Lord Jesus was saying is that each one of us has to take full responsibility for our own journey to salvation. And therefore, our own personal relationship with God. We've got to take responsibility for our own relationship with God. We cannot depend on our mother's relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. We cannot depend on our great-grandfather who may have been a deacon in a church or a pastor or a lay preacher. We don't get into heaven on their coattails. We can't be saved because we were born into a God-honouring home or a society or a culture. It's not a birthright. Salvation is not a birthright. Also, we can't expect someone else to secure our salvation for us. It's not something that is granted by cultural heritage or ritual. What the Lord Jesus was saying is that each one of us make, must take responsibility for our own choices in life and 
our own journey in life. It's on me. It's not something that we can get by the coattails of another. And we only get one shot at it. There is only one life. None of us know how long our life will be or when it will end. So it's not a good plan to wait until the end to make a decision for God. A number of years ago I knew a lady, lovely lady, she was from Wales. She had a daughter and this daughter was about 30 years of age. She wasn't married, she was working in an office complex in the city and uh, she was working at her desk one day and the people around were working and uh, she said, oh, got a bit of a headache and she stood up and she was dead before she hit the ground. Brain aneurysm. No one knows when the end will come. None of us are guaranteed a long life. Also, the Lord Jesus clearly told his hearers and us that this way of personal responsibility is not an easy road. We've got to take responsibility for our choices in life and our relationship with God, and it is not easy. Jesus described the destination as a narrow door or a narrow gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, not the highway, not the broad doors, the narrow gate, the narrow door. In other words, the Lord said that the way of salvation the way to heaven and eternal life, the way to, li to live a life dedicated to following the example of truth, integrity and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus would not be easy. Being a Christian is not an easy life. As it was then, so it is today. Many may start the journey of living a God-honouring life and practising many of the faith disciplines that have been handed down from generation to generation. Many may start out by daring to follow a different path to that which we see in the world, especially among our friends, where so many have chosen a way for personal gain and self-gratification only to find that it's just too hard to be different and therefore easier to conform to the ways of the world. It's always easier to conform. Always. 
but that's not the best way to live. In the end, those who start well and, po and finish poorly, they lack strength of conviction. They lack character and determination because they fail to understand the difference between religion or religiosity and a faith walk with God. The Lord Jesus spoke of the few who strive to know and understand the difference between religion and God and whose lives are ultimately transformed by God's Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus spoke of this life of dedication to the things of God, like entering through the narrow door. And as I read these words, I was reminded of the Capricorn Caves, which are approximately 30 kilometres north of Rockhampton. Has anyone ever been to Rockhampton and visited the Capricorn Caves? You have? Good. The rest of you, you have a wonderful treat waiting for you. It is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I've tried to capture some of the photographs that I took. It's a wonderful cave system with some fascinating features. And one of the special features is that they take you to guided tour thing. They take you into a large chamber and it's called the cathedral and the lights are on of course, you know, some basic lights, so there's a little bit of illumination and you look around, you see the stalactites and stalagmites and you see the formations and it's beautiful, it really is lovely and, and a lot of uh, couples choose to have their wedding there so it's been set up like a chapel, it's beautiful. But then, then they turn off all the lights. They say, don't move because you'll trip. Just stay put. We're going to turn the lights off. So they turn the lights off. Now, what happens when you turn the lights off? You can't see anything, can you? Because your eyeballs have been dilated or used to the light. Turn the lights off, you go blind. That's all right. After about a minute or so, you start seen shapes and things like that, don't you? When you're of a night time walking through your house, you see the shapes. Not in this cave. Two minutes later, as black as anything, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. You could stay there an hour. You would never see your hand in front of your face. It is absolute darkness. Do you remember that? Did you see your hand in front of your face? No. <laughs> it's incredible. But then there's another special feature. Oh boy. At one point, the passageway becomes rather narrow and the ceiling comes down. And there is a passageway that's a Z-shaped. And you've got to get through it. Did you get through it? Okay. 
The ceiling's about this height, and it's about that wide. So you have to lower yourself down, and you have to put yourself on the side, and you're sort of going through like this, trying to get through this zigzag. You remember it now? Did you get through it? Well done. To get through it, you have to take off your backpack, you have to get rid of all your luggage, anything. If you've got a thick coat on, you've got to take your coat off and you've got to take small steps. Your body's twisted in one way, your legs are twisted the other way. You've got to take small steps, you've got to be very patient and you've got to make yourself as small and as low as possible. There was one part, I don't know, I'm not a big barrel chested person, but I got a little stuck and I had to breathe out in order to manoeuvre myself the next couple of inches. <sighs> to be sure, it's not easy. And over the years, some have not been able to make it and some have even needed the help of the SES to extricate them. Of course, there is a, another road that you can go out to get outside, but this one's really tight. Did you go to it as well? No, just you. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it's good, isn't it? And you get through and that sense of, I did it. Any journey we seek to undertake in our relationship with God must be like this, going through that Z narrow little entryway. If we want to enter in the narrow door of which the Lord Jesus spoke, we need to rid our, our lives of all those things that seek to hinder us in our walk with the Lord. Get rid of a lot of it. We don't need it. As we read in Hebrews 12.1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We need to take, in our journey to the Lord, we need to take small steps as we grow in our faith walk, trusting the Lord to lead us in the right way and to learn from him that which gives God the greatest joy and pleasure. Going through that narrow little Z part. As we read in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In some of your ways acknowledge him. Oh dear. I'll, I'll read it again. I'll emphasise it. Trust in the Lord with some of your heart and do not lean on your own un and understanding. In some of your ways acknowledge him. Is there a problem here? What's the problem? 
Why is some a problem? Thank you, brother. Thank you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He'll make that awkward little Z a lot easier for you. We also need to make ourselves small. So we need to get rid of the, the baggage. We've got to take small steps and we've got to make ourselves small. Rather than pushing ourselves forward, we need to make ourselves small because it is in humility and our care, concern and thoughtfulness toward others that we discover a right and godly perspective in life. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh, brothers and sisters, I've, I've learned so much by making my way through the narrow and low passage in Capricorn Caves. I've learned so much by trying to listen to the Lord's leading in my life. And one lesson that I have learned is that it's not so much how we start the journey of faith, but how we finish. That's what's important. Anyone can make a show, a big show, of how we start. But the important thing is, how do we finish? As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good, fight, uh, the good fight. Past tense, fought. I have fought the good fight. I have finished, past tense again, I have finished the race. I have kept, past tense again, I have kept the faith. At the end of his life, Paul looked back. He had fought, he had finished, he had kept what God had given him. All I can do today and any day is to encourage you to all look to the Lord in all things. If our eyes stray to look at that which the world sees as important or how other people may see us, then the focus of our lives will gradually change to conform to please those people and to seek their approval rather than to focus on God and seek his approval. The response of the Lord will be, as he said in verse 27 of our reading, I do not know you. Depart from me. The world is very enticing. It seeks to conform us all the time. It is intolerant of those who dare to be different, of those who dare to follow Jesus.
if we firmly fix our focus on the Lord and his righteousness, if we develop a relationship with him in prayer and study his word to know and understand how he would have us live, he will continue to guide and direct us all the days of our life. Again, from Hebrews 12.3, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, church, yes, the door is narrow. And not everyone who expects entry will be welcomed in. But as the Lord Jesus said in verse 29, the kingdom of God will not be empty. The Lord will gather people from the, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. He will not be denied that for which the Lord Jesus suffered and endured. There will be a multitude of those gathered who have fought the good fight, who have finished the race and who have kept the faith. The issue will be that many who expect and claim heaven as their right and heritage will sadly find themselves on the outer. They will find that there are no coattails to grab hold of. So the challenge for each one of us today is where do you stand with God? And if you are unsure, if you do not know, if you don't have that assurance of your ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus, then let today be the day when you decide all of God and none of self. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear the message of Jesus. You've called us to a life of responsibility, a life in which we live all for you and not for ourselves. Lord God, may we learn these lessons that you have taught and may we be prepared to rid ourselves of the baggage of life, to take small steps and to make ourselves small so that we will be able to enter in to that door that you have spoken of. You are our Lord and our God, 
And we want to praise you and glorify you. Amen.